Meditation is not what you think. You don't have to stop your mind from thinking, sit in any weird postures, or make any bizarre sounds. All you need is a little guidance, and after that, the practice will show you the way. I'm Dina Riropulu, a meditation instructor and creator of the One Fierce Heart podcast. And in each episode, I talk with experienced teachers and practitioners to demystify meditation, giving you practical tips on how to start, ways to face the challenges, while also acknowledging the transformative power and clarity that come with meditation. So please join us as we dive deeper into this mysterious yet ridiculously simple practice that's been around for over two and a half thousand years. If you want to learn how to meditate, you can join my free weekly newsletter at theonefierceheart.com where I share audio-guided meditations and occasionally programs and ways to work with me. So, take a deep breath, let it go, and let's begin. Today's guest taught me everything I know about how to teach meditation. She taught me how to drop any expectations I have as a teacher and as a practitioner and guided me on the path as I began to slowly trust myself again, reconnect with my innate power, and navigate what it means to be human. This is a very special episode because my guest is Susan Piver, a New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the founder of the Open Heart Project, which is the world's largest online-only meditation center and community. She is a constant reminder of elegance, power, and wisdom, and I'm so proud to have learned from her. So here's my beloved teacher. Susan, I am so so excited you are here with me today, and thank you so much for doing this. I'm so happy you invited me, and I'm glad to be here with you as well. And before we dive deep into all these human existence concepts, um, I just wanted to ask you how you're doing, and how have the past two years of the pandemic impacted you? Mm. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you. I'm not just saying that. I think I am, but one never knows. And I think the real answer for how has the pandemic affected me is I'm not sure yet. It's still happening. And so I think me and you and others will hopefully be able to look back and make sense of what we experienced in a deeper way. But Without knowing the overall impact yet, because it's still happening, I would say that it's been weirdly okay, not the the suffering of the pandemic and none of that is obviously okay, but there's some sense of the enforced slowdown that while it has drastic financial implications and relationship implications and all sorts of really painful, terrible things. There's something to be found in the enforced slowdown if one is fortunate, and I am. I have the good fortune to be able to work from home and so forth. I And to take things away from my calendar and my schedule has been nourishing. How about you? Have you experienced that? I have. I have been 
lucky and privileged enough, you know, to be here in Greece and be home. And it, it, like you said, it's just weirdly okay, but also it's not okay. And I don't know exactly how to kind of deal with it. You know, I'm sure a lot of people are feeling the same way. And I do know that <laughs> to tie it to our meditation practice, if I didn't have that, I don't know where I would be. Mm. How, how do you explain that? Or what, what, how, how do you think your meditation practice has helped? Well, I think, words? yeah, it has helped me come back to what it is that is happening in each moment. And it has also helped me realize that because I'm aware of where my mind is, or at least that's what I try to do with our practice, to be aware of where my mind is, okay. for some reason, I have become extremely curious about observing and noticing how other people's minds are processing what's happening. Hmm. And it's so interesting to me to see how the things I take for granted in my limited viewpoint, how other people are seeing things. And I'm like, wow, it just shocks me and how, how people are experiencing things and their perception. Hmm. So our practice has helped me become more open to being, to accepting other people and wondering like, huh, what, I wonder why they see things that way. Hmm. Isn't it amazing that our practice, which is basically sitting there doing nothing, quote unquote, yes. somehow leads to this heart opening, this greater compassion for others and a willingness to extend yourself to others and put judgment on hold for a minute or for a while. I, Whereas before, at least speaking for myself, before having a meditation practice, it was all just so reflexive and automatic. My, my responses to others were like pre-programmed, but somehow our practice introduces space between what you hear and what you do, you know, what people say to you and how you respond. It doesn't, you know, it's not something that I was actively looking for. It's just what's really, really intense for me, you know, right now at this period in my life. And there's a zillion other ways our practice has helped me, you know, through this. But yeah, like before, I was very rigid, you know, in my views, and I know what's right. And mm -hmm. my, <laughs> my worldview is right, you know, and not anymore. Uh, and that, I don't know, it's just that heart opening, like you said. So I wonder how you have experienced all that too, or what other members of the Open Heart Project um, have, you know, shared as well. Yeah. Well, first, let me just say, it's amazing what you're just saying, that I used to be rigid, and now I'm not. I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's a really beautiful thing. And it's in the Buddhist view, anyway, and doesn't, no one has to be Buddhist to look at it this way. But that's the ground of compassion. That's where compassion comes from. So it's not just 
oh, this is nice. I'm not a jerk mm-hmm. <laughs> as much. But it's, it's powerful for the world. It's what the world needs. I, I'm not exaggerating. So it's, it's, it's really great. It's really important is a better word than great. And for, I've heard from other members of the Open Heart Project their version of this, which is I'm more patient. I, I suddenly, I, I sort of looked around in the middle of a situation that would normally have made me lose my temper and I was not losing my temper. Some, how did I become more patient? And uh, people finding courage to enter into conversations or take steps in their lives that they that were unexpected, that they wouldn't have done necessarily prior to their meditation practice because their compassion also extends towards themselves. So, yeah, I want to be kind to myself. I want to take chances on my own brilliance, and those things are great. And But I believe it was all summed up for me by my mother, who said to me, like, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. you're a lot nicer since you became a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> it's so true how it just... I tie that to the self-aggression because that's how I experienced it. Once I became aware of self-aggression, which I still do, it's not like I'm not, you know, uh, I don't do that to myself constantly, like, oh, I need to be more productive or, I, you know, mm-hmm. I need to, what all the things. And once I saw how I'm doing that to myself, first off, it completely broke my heart <laughs> oh. because I'm like, how can I be doing this to myself and that was the opening uh, as Mm -hmm. well that self-aggression but practicing that with our meditation practice is huge it really is and you know as you know the meditation technique is extremely simple it's so simple that it can it's hard to believe Mm -hmm. and just very basically it's you sit down you place your attention on the breath and you let your thoughts be as they are. And when you get distracted, you come back to feeling your breath. That's it. That's the whole thing. But there's something in that I am just going to sit here and be myself. I'm not going to try to get anywhere. I'm not going to try to work on anything. I'm not going to try to become egoless or be a nicer person even. I'm just going to sit with myself as I am. And when I stop efforting, I'm just here breathing. I have all sorts of thoughts, and that's fine. But there's something about making, extending the hand of friendship toward yourself, making the gesture of friendship. Because with our friends, we don't say, you should do this, you should do that, you're an idiot, why, I can't believe you wore that. You know, we don't say that. But we say that to ourselves all day long. And in our practice, we notice that we're saying that. We don't try to stop it or try to stop it. We notice that there's this running commentary and just stay feeling the body breathe. Thoughts come and go, feeling the body breathe. And that in Buddhism is called relaxation. You just relax with yourself as you are. And from that little seed of gentleness, so many things blossom, including what you're describing, Dina, 
self-compassion, heartbreaking, your heart breaking for yourself over the unkind way that you speak to yourself, that, that's potent. There's a lot of implications. It is, and I remember talking to my grandma. She's she's still alive. She's 84 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, I come from a line of really powerful females, but that power was buried, you know? I had the experience of having to be this good Greek girl that shuts up and listens to everyone else, right? So mm-hmm. um, I'm learning to undo that. But my grandma, what she had hurt her knee, and, and I said, you know, Grandma, I said, you really need to take care of yourself. And she said to me, I know, but I don't know how. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, whoa. <laughs> you know, that was the beginning of me connecting the dots in my family, you know, mm-hmm. and the lineage of the females. And I'm wondering how the feminine energy in Buddhism and how you've experienced have come into play. And I feel like it's just starting to surface now, the power, and I'm reconnecting with my power. Mm. That's such a great question and such a rich and nuanced topic. I appreciate you bringing it up. How's your grandmother, by the way? She's fine. She's good. (laughs) She's really good. Thanks. (laughs) Um, yeah in Buddhism as well as other traditions there are masculine and feminine energies described it has nothing to do with gender or whether you're a man or a woman or neither or both they're just energies and in the Buddhist view or one of the Buddhist views the Female principle is equated with what's called emptiness, Mm. which is interesting. Now, empty doesn't mean void or lifeless. It means all accommodating, just expansive without boundary, completely open and Men and women, obviously, have that capacity, but it's associated with the feminine principle in Buddhist wisdom. So I think what you're describing, some increased gentleness towards yourself and others, is not necessarily, at least speaking for myself, it's not necessarily because I'm like, oh, actually, you're a really awesome person. Sometimes I think that, sometimes I don't. But rather, there's a sense of accommodating and making space for all of my craziness and all of my goodness and everything that's a mess. Everything, all of that can be included in your practice and in your journey as a, as a practitioner of whatever you practice, even if you think you're not practicing anything. You can include everything. And I find that enormously heartening because in other Things that I've tried in my life as a practitioner, uh, there's often a sense of this is what you can do and this is what you should not do. And this is who you should be and this is who you shouldn't be. And through the lens of the feminine principle, in Buddhist practice, all of that is goes away. 
And the question that remains is, who are you? And there's uh, not who should you be, but who are you? So that's one very loosely described way. But I also feel proud, I would say, in the Open Heart Project, which the online community, that has, it has a lot of feminine principle running through it. Part of it is enforced because it's always been only a virtual community. We were practicing together as a community on Zoom, you know, like eight years ago. So it's only ever been invisible, which is uh, useful. Um, because it, there's a sense of spreading. It is it, it sort of, it, I don't know how to describe it. I'm, I am the founder of the Open Heart Project, but I'm not a teacher going, this is what you should do, and this is, this is first complete this level and then complete that level. Mm-hmm. A, because I have no idea what that, how one would even do that. And B, I just don't feel that that's the way. Although I myself was trained in that way, and I'm very grateful for my training. But the overarching view of the Open Heart Project, Sangha, is for me personally as a teacher is and this is how I was taught by the way so I'm not making this up don't teach anyone anything help them to discover something that's the most brilliant teaching instruction there is I think that and again in my training that's what I was trained to do so I want to claim credit for that beautiful phrase and I think there's something very feminine principle about that. I'm not teaching you anything. I'm not like, I'm up here, you're down there, let me lay it on you, and you know, if you have any questions, come back. <laughs> no, it's let's, tra- let's be in something together, which is much easier to do online, by the way. Let's be in something together. Let me transmit or share what I have learned, and I would like to know what you are experiencing, what you have learned. And I trust you. I trust you. Now you go forth and prosper. You, what do you discover now? That's what's important, not what I have to say. So I'm not trying to minimize or be all humble or anything, but I'm just saying because it's the effing truth. It doesn't matter what I have to say. What matters is what you discover through your own studies and practice. Does that resonate with you? Is that right? Does that sound right to you as a practitioner? That does sound right to me. And, you know, I was trained by you. I learned from you, you know. So um, in every episode of this podcast, I refer to my teacher, Susan Piper. So that does resonate with me. And, you know, for me, I had to learn and I learned through this practice to discover things on my own and to trust myself. That's it. And I did not trust myself before Mm -hmm. that. That's so great, Dina. And I've seen that. I see that. I can feel that because we've known each other for a few years now. And it's been wonderful, really, really wonderful just to feel your taking you you taking your seat 
as a friend, as a teacher, as a as as Dina. And it's that's the best thing that we can do with our lives is take our seat as ourselves. I'm not trying to say that in a woo-woo way because the world needs a lot of help. But the way that we can help is by taking our seat, recognizing our gifts, and then committing to sharing them in whatever way makes sense to you. So your sharing might be a podcast. My sharing might be writing a book. Someone else's sharing might be loving their children or sitting in deep meditative samadhi for a month. You know, it's just, I'm just saying we share in different ways, but until you know who are you? What do you have to give? It's, it's hard to offer your brilliance. It, it is, and it breaks my heart seeing that, you know, the females in my family mm. weren't given an option uh, yeah. to do that. You know, and I, I know a lot of other uh, women have experienced this, you know, and especially in a culture like the Greek culture which is very traditional mm. um, you know I was angry mm-hmm. at realizing how that trust and those options were taken away from us mm. um, so I'm processing that still <laughs> it's, been, <laughs> it's a lot how are you doing that and what, what do you do with your anger I know that's a complex question without oh. a particular answer but I'd love to hear more um yeah well I uh, uh, anger is so hard and I would love to hear your insights on this topic as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know um it takes a lot of patience (laughs) it takes a lot of compassion and Mm -hmm. a lot of pausing uh, so I don't, you know, like start lashing out to all the guys in my family. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, so the way I'm doing that is I just keep coming back and reminding myself that I can hold space for both the fact that I am really pissed off that this happened. Mm-hmm. And I can hold space for the fact that they just didn't know anything better and you know just showing compassion Mm -hmm. as much as I can Mm -hmm. um and I just am committed to breaking that dysfunction in my family that's how I'm processing it but I'm still really pissed and that doesn't you know negate the fact that I can be compassionate both can exist at the same time they can be synonymous actually Mm. I, anger, well, first, just, wow, that, that is so, you're bringing it to your, you're bringing it to the path, as they say. You're not separating your anger, your impatience, and your difficulty with compassion, and your success with compassion. You're not separating those things from your practice. And that's the sign of a practitioner. I'm bringing it to the path, meaning I'm not like making everything all kittens and balloons and sweetness and light, but I'm working with it, like with a lot of grit. And I'm not, you know, because the spiritual journey in meditation practice, I don't have to tell you, it's not about feeling all peaceful. Mm -hmm. It's about finding some sense of peace within 
your experience of anger, of impatience, of lack of compassion, let's say, by accepting it, own, uh, resting in it, feeling it, which is different than acting on it. But you can be peaceful with anger, not by becoming unangry, but by accepting that you are angry. And that's, this, that's a great, great start. So in the Vajrayana Buddhist view, because different Buddhist views have different ways of looking at something like anger, and, and they're basically three. The first view, you could say, and this is all very uh, broadly described, is anger is afflictive. And it is. It causes great harm to you and to others. It's an afflictive emotion, and it would be really awesome if you could stop being angry. So do what you need to do to stop being angry. Sometimes that's good. But that's just one-third of the possibilities Second view about anger is anger can be a bridge of compassion between yourself who has been hurt by something and is therefore angry about it and whoever you might meet in the future who has also been hurt by that and is now angry about it too because you have allowed yourself to feel what you feel, you now have the skill to be compassionate towards anyone you meet in the future who will be experiencing that. So while it's painful and unpleasant and can cause great harm, for sure, when you hold your own anger as, oh, look, I've been given something to help me learn about helping others, then it's different than afflictive, get rid of it. So that's also quite useful and different Actions relating to anger and all strong emotions are relevant at different times. So I'm not saying one is the right answer. That the third, the first is afflictive, see ya. The second is, oh, bridge to compassion. It hurts me, but it could help someone else. Third is <clears throat> anger is a masked form of wisdom itself. It is not like, oh, what can I learn from this? Not that kind of wisdom. But when you look into the heart of anger, which is a very uncomfortable thing to do, and you let go of the story of the anger, that's the key. I'm angry because this has been generations. I'm angry because I could have been this or you could have been that. I'm angry because my grandmother doesn't know how to take care of herself. That's all great, relevant and important, super important, not to be ignored. But the anger itself is separate from those storylines. Again, the storylines are essential, but the anger is just a burning energy. Some people feel it as a cold energy, but it's something in the body or in the environment that exists separate from thoughts. And when you look, again, into the heart of anger, you find an extraordinary form of wakefulness. You cannot be angry and sleepy. So when you are angry, you're also very awake. It doesn't feel good. I hate getting angry. But <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I hate it. Oh, God, it's so uncomfortable. Some people like it. Uh, but if you can say, okay, I've got this anger now. It's waking me up. What can I put it in service of instead of trying to di diminish it or use it to benefit others even? What is it? 
What spark is it lighting? So there's the three views of how to work with anger, and they're all three right. So there you go. <laughs> it, it, yeah, and it's anger is something I never allowed myself to feel for years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And once it the gates opened and it all flooded me, I was like, I don't know what the hell to do with this. <laughs> wow. What have you done? Well, one thing that I did was, um, I think one time we were talking on Clubhouse, and and you suggested uh, Chud, that meditation. Oh, right. uh, Chud practiced. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's how I say it. Okay. Um, And wow, what a powerful practice that was, you know, and I'm not saying like everyone should go and do that, um, uh, but that's what I tried, and... uh, it was really intense and it was really great and powerful, but I am just, it's, it, for me, it's a burning sensation, anger. <laughs> I don't know how it is for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm taking it and making it, I don't know, something creative and I write a lot and I have a lot of conversations and, um, it's not a difficult, it's not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, I will go to our practice. I would not be able to hold that space for anger if it wasn't for our practice. Well, that's, that's so great. I, I'm so, I'm happy for you and I'm happy for everyone in your life because they will benefit from your capacity to work with your inner state. That's really great, Tina. I hope so. And I'm trying and you know, I'm wondering how, like, for from the way I've experienced it with with other people in my life, and I, I catch myself trying to like be like, but this is the way, you know, like, what are, like you need to listen to me, and then I have to remind myself, I just need to hold that space because that is more potent and powerful, and they will feel that as opposed yes. to just my words. I agree. I agree. If you can embody it. No one's going to need to hear any words about it. In most cases, just as you say, people are like, okay, whatever. But if you show up grounded, willing to love, connected to yourself, wanting to love them, that's the best. No no words need to be spoken. Yeah. Unless someone asks, because then when they ask, then it's like, oh, cool. But otherwise, they tend not to be interested which is fine. I've also been thinking about how this human suffering, like humans, we are humans, so we will suffer. And that's part of the four noble truths, um, Mm -hmm. as uh, is expressed in the Buddhist view. And I I was wondering if you can like, um, just kind of walk us through the four noble truths and what that means. Yeah, I'd be delighted. Um, So, yeah, the historic Buddha, according to the lore and the history, at some point practiced for many years and tried all sorts of practices of his day and and then sat down under a tree called a Bodhi tree and said, I'm just going to sit here until I become enlightened. I'm not going to do anything, which is kind of our practice too, Dina. (laughs) And it worked. He became enlightened, and then he went back to his community and they're like, 
something's different about you. <laughs> I'm making this part up. But <laughs> what happened? And um, enlightened, oh, although no enlightened person would ever say that. But anyway, somehow it became clear that he had glimpsed the nature of reality. And when asked, he said, I saw four things. The first noble truth, as it's called, is life is suffering. <laughs> it's really, really unpleasant. <laughs> Thanks, Buddha. <laughs> um, but I, I believe the Pali word, was, or Sanskrit, I'm not sure, it was dukkha, like D-U-K-K-A-H, which is perhaps more accurately translated as unsatisfying. Life is unsatisfying, meaning you accomplish something and then it's gone. Or you accomplish something, but it's not what you hoped it would be. Or you lose something that you really wanted, and it was great that you had it, but now you don't have it anymore. And in other words, there's n everything is impermanent. And it's very hard to reckon with. So there is nothing solid and stable to hold on to. And that's terrifying. However, if you look around, you may see that that is true or not. It's up to you to figure it out. But life is suffering or unsatisfying because whatever we build will also collapse. Okay. This second noble truth is called the cause of suffering, which is sometimes named as grasping, which has some sense of pretending that the first noble truth is not true. I am going to try to build something permanent and safe anyway. And I'm going to cling on to the things that I think are good, and I'm going to push away the things that I think are bad, which is very wise, you know, on one level. Uh, but if one thinks, well, that's going to make me happy permanently, then that's a problem. So the third noble truth is called, called the cessation of suffering, which says something like, now that you know the cause, grasping, just stop doing that, and you will not suffer anymore. It's like, it hurts when I go like this. Well, don't go like that <laughs> sort of vibe. Obviously, obviously, this is all more nuanced and complicated than I'm presenting. But And then the fourth noble truth is called the noble eightfold path, which is, oh, stop grasping? Oh, well, how do you do that? And then fourth noble truth, a.k.a. the noble eightfold path, says, this is how. Right view, right intention, right speech, right livelihood, right action, and so on. So do those things. And then you can back your way through the Four Noble Truths. You can stop grasping, and you can stop suffering. So in a very tiny nutshell, <laughs> those are the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> Unsatisfactory is key is like spot on I'm like really feeling it the past I don't know year mm -hmm. like I don't know how you have experienced this but I'm just like really I'm like what what is the point of it all yeah. <laughs> you know and trying to I'm like what why why do we have to like go through all this and feel all these things and what's happening yeah well part of what you're doing is this podcast which is so great. I'm not trying to say this mitigates all the confusion about why is everything so painful and worse, cruel and difficult. But you're doing something to bring benefit, and that 
that is really important. And I don't know why it's like this. <laughs> I just have no idea. But I trust, I trust the path that we're on, not to fix everything or even anything, but to bring something to fruition that can only be brought to fruition in your life or in my life. And then we're not here and then we're gone. And not gone because something remains. Mm-hmm. I, Thich Nhat Hanh passed away mm-hmm. on the 22nd. I'm sure many people are. And he, and he's, he has so many things he said in, in the wake of his passing have come to light that I didn't know of, not being a student of his or not having read a lot from him. And there's over and over again what has been coming to light, like on Instagram and stuff like that, is uh, I'm not not here. I was, did, <laughs> or as the great country singer Willie Nelson once said, <laughs> This is my favorite thing ever is the whole Buddha Dharma in one sentence. Thanks, Lily, Cosmic Cowboy. <laughs> I didn't come here, and I ain't leaving. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's basically yeah. what I'm saying. I'm the same thing. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to love that. Oh, my gosh. I... I'm, I can work with that, you know. I can. <laughs> that makes it easier. I can work with that. It, I can come here and I ain't leaving. Yeah, yeah. so perfect about that. <laughs> there really is. There really mm-hmm. is. Oh my gosh! And you know, it's like spiraling my mind. How it just spirals into this whole like la 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 and blah 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 and everything, and then just like we do in our practice, just, okay, snap out of it and come back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, but first, before you snap out of it, you touch it with your attention. You notice it. Oh, that's yeah. happening. You know, in a sense, that's a little mini hug. Okay, okay, come on. You can have a seat at the table. You're really irritating, but okay, come on. You can and sit here, yeah. Exactly. But I'm going to go back in the kitchen and keep making dinner or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. there's a sense of bringing it in and you mentioned when you were talking about anger, trying to be patient. And I also, I hear you being patient with yourself, which is so like the ultimate wonderful hallmark of self-compassion. And in the Buddhist view or a Buddhist view, patience, which is very hard for, mm-hmm. and for some people it's the hardest. Mm-hmm. Uh, patience is what happens when you have no expectations, which, of course, we should have expectations. We should expect people to act right and do what they say and not be evil jerks and all that. But when we, in the moment, when we give up our expectations about how things should go or what is going to happen if I say this or you do that, and again, that space opens up, that space that we've been talking about off and on since we began speaking today, you re-encounter that space. And, yeah, so working with one's expectations, not to destroy them, but to also bring them, okay, okay, your expectation, okay, you can come in too, but I'm going to hold you a little more loosely, please return the favor, uh, is really useful in working with the craziness of our world. 
It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's why this is a warrior's path. It's a warrior's path. And you're demonstrating it in the way you describe your practice. And I'm not just saying that. It, it's very hard. But you know what? I say to myself sometimes, mm-hmm. what else are you going to do with your life, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> Try to find some nice, easy thing. Well, that could be cool. But I don't seem to be wired that way. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks, thanks for for um, and being here and uh, sharing everything. Um, and as we slowly approach the end of our conversation, mm-hmm. I uh, wanted to ask you first off if there's anything you'd like to share that comes to mind, anything at all. Mm. Um, I'm just really happy to be in a Dharma community with you. I'm really grateful for our that we're on the journey together. Thank you. I'm so grateful for you too. And I would not have imagined like five years ago when I came across your website <laughs> that we'd be talking here today. Um, and thank you so much for that. Yeah. Congratulations on the work that you're doing. Yeah, and you're so welcome. Is there anything you would like to tell maybe first-time meditators or someone mm. that's just entering the path? Mm. Yeah. Welcome. And uh, if you want to learn to meditate, that's great. It, it's very important to learn from someone who has been trained to teach. The Open Heart Project is... I believe one of those places it's free. You can sign up and meditation instruction videos go out a couple times a month. Uh, And be patient with yourself and your practice and recognize that at some point your meditation practice is going to become difficult and boring. And anyone who says otherwise is lying. (laughs) When it becomes difficult and boring that's a threshold for something wonderful to begin to take root. So hang in there. I'm going through the boring stage right now. Right? <laughs> yes. It lasts a while, I'm telling you, from personal experience. <laughs> but that's okay. Very little happens during meditation. I'll just say that straight up. Mm-hmm. But your whole life changes when you look back. So you meditate, you're like, oh, this is boring. Oh, I'm not very good at it. All the things that most people think, myself included, I'm like, well, that was worthless. Oh, I guess I'll do it again tomorrow. Oh, that seemed also worthless. And, but then when I look back, my whole life has changed. So the fruits of the practice do not occur during the practice for 99.9% of people. They occur in your life, which is where we really want to see them. So don't look for fireworks and keep it very, very simple and then examine your life and see what you find. This podcast is created for people like you who want to finally find out what this meditation hype is all about. Thanks for listening and don't forget to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. You'll find that link in the episode notes. The One Fierce Heart podcast is produced and hosted by me, Dina Riropulu. 
sound editing and mixing by Matrix Recording Studio in Athens, Greece.